You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. It's doing it for Bartolo. My name is Gene Lee. On the show this week, we have Trenny Kuzni. Eric Trenny is a reporter for Comcast Sportsnet New England. Trenny, first and foremost, is uh, really outspoken. If you follow her on Twitter, I'm sure you guys are aware of that. Uh, she's outspoken about a lot of a whole, a whole wide range of issues. Uh, but we I had a really great conversation with her. We we touched on a lot of things, kind of her really interesting arc in sports media and and journalism. And uh, we also talked about uh, her her fight with depression, and so, which is something that she's been very very outspoken about. Uh, and we also talked about kind of the issues facing women in sports media today, media as a whole, uh, both online and behind the scenes. And it was a an eye opening conversation in many regards for myself. Uh, so I think you guys are going to end up really enjoying uh, the talk I had with her. Uh, I'm currently in Washington, D.C. I moved here a couple days ago to start my internship at the Washington Post. Uh, if you guys are interested in following that work, and I hope you are if you listen to this podcast, you follow me on Twitter at IamJunLee. That's probably the easiest way to, to see all the stuff that I'm doing over there for the sports section. Uh, and I think it's going to be a pretty wide-ranging uh, variety of things that you're going to see over there. So thanks again for for supporting me and supporting the podcast. Uh, it's it's something that I, I really, truly appreciate, and I appreciate every single one of you guys listening to the show. If this is your first time listening, thank you for listening. Uh, you can head over to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. Uh, or wherever you listen to your podcast, please hit the subscribe button. Uh, please leave us a rating over there on iTunes as well. It really does help us get the word out about the show and tell a friend as well that you listen to the show, that we have some pretty cool guests. Uh, you're going to want to be subscribed next week. We have a doozy of a guest. Uh, I'll announce that at the end of the podcast. But if you guys follow me on Twitter, you probably actually already know who it is. Um, so uh, there's that. Uh, and that's about it. So uh, let's get on to my conversation with Trini Kuzni-Eric of Comcast Sportsnet. It's always on my mind You are my favorite song Your love is justified You play me all the time Alright, so today on the show we have Trini Kuznierik of Comcast Sports Net New England. Uh, Trini, thanks for uh, taking the time to come on. Thanks for having me, June. How are things going? Can't complain. I mean, I could, but who would listen, right? The socks are in first. It's finally warm outside. Summer. Uh, so yeah, things are going well. Uh, thanks for thanks for taking the time to come on. Uh, I mean, just I wanted to to I guess to start off. Uh, you know, where did you grow up, and uh, how did you get into sports and and start uh, thinking about sports as a career? At what point did you kind of start thinking about that? Um, I grew up in uh, Wisconsin. I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee. Um, Grew up a huge sports fan. Baseball was always my first love. My dad and I would go to County Stadium when I was a little kid and watch Brewers games and, you know, toss the ball around in our cul-de-sac and, you know, um, all the sort of memories that I have of tailgating because we tailgate in Wisconsin when you go to a baseball game. Hmm. It's a sort of tradition there. Yeah, it's a little different, a little different. Um, so I have all those memories of, you know, going to see Robin Yount's 3,000th hit and the first game uh, or the first series of interleague play, first series of the, them being in the National League, the end of County Stadium, the beginning of Miller Park. So that's baseball's always been my number one passion. But of course, I, growing up in Wisconsin, I was always a huge Packers fan, grew up, you know, watching when I was younger, they were terrible. And then like in the early 90s and Don Mikowski and then the move to Brett Favre started to happen. Things, they started getting better so that there was that when I was in high school and college. Um, you know, I was kind of a Bucks fan, but not like a diehard, definitely not like a diehard Wisconsin fan either, but always loved Marquette basketball. So fitting that I went to school there. Uh, but I didn't really grow up wanting to be a sports reporter. I grew up wanting just to be a journalist. I liked asking questions. I'm curious. I like telling stories. Um, when I was growing up, there really weren't a lot of females to look at and say, oh, that's what I'd like to do someday. So it wasn't really until I was in college that it even dawned on me that it was a possibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there like a moment for you where like, oh, this is this is like something I could do with my life? Yeah, I actually was watching a Packers game with a friend of mine in my freshman year in college, and I was complaining about something that the Packers were doing, and we were talking about the play and the play calling, and my friend turned to me and said, you should be a sports reporter. Girls do that now. And I was like, yeah, that actually would be really fun 
because being a local news reporter seems kind of depressing. Um, and so I looked into a sports internship that summer and I did it and just fell in love with it and uh, went from there. Uh I, th I think it's really interesting that it did, I mean, like kind of seemed like it was a, like a spontaneous kind of thing that you, that well, you I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'm a lot older than you. So <laughs> when I, it's not like, I mean, it's true. I mean, it's not like, you know, now if you're a young woman in college, every time you turn on the television, there's a female talking about sports. When I was in college in the early nineties, mid nineties, not early nineties, mid nineties, there were very, I think Leslie Visser might have been the Monday Night Football sideline reporter at that time, but honestly, I don't think it was her. I think it was, God, the running back who used to play for the Rams, African-American guy, Eric, I think, and I can't even, Eric like, Dickerson. I'm blanking on his last Eric Dickerson. Yes, I think it was still Eric Dickerson. So even when I was in at that time, it was just starting to happen that more and more women were becoming more and more prominent. Like I didn't grow up. This is going to sound crazy, but we didn't have cable in my house. My dad's pretty Catholic, didn't think that we should be exposed to anything other than regular TV. So I didn't have ESPN to watch growing up because we didn't have cable. So I didn't see Susie Colbert and Chris McHendry and Linda Cohn early, you know, like in the 90s when they had when that sort of started to take hold. So and this isn't a day there was no internet when I was in college, or excuse me, there was no internet when I was in high school or middle school. So, you know, I wasn't exposed to any of it. So it didn't cross my mind to do it because I just didn't think it was a possibility. It wasn't like my parents said to me, oh, hey, you really like sports. You understand sports and you want to be a journalist. Why don't you think about being a sports journalist? That just was never even a, a, a thought, I think, that even crossed my parents' mind. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, so once you, once you kind of get that, that first internship, what, did, what, was, what were you doing in order to, to pursue that first job and, and get into the industry? Um, just working my butt off. I mean, after my first internship, I actually got a job working on the news side at the television station. So I learned sort of every aspect of it. Um, I was on the assignment desk. I was an associate producer. I ended up doing some field producing for both news and sports. Um, I worked on my resume tape. I worked at the college television station. Um, and then after I graduated from school, I just sent out at this time again, their internet was in its infancy in the late 90s. So it's not like I put something up on YouTube because it didn't exist, right? So I send out VHS tapes. Um, you'd put them in, you know, you'd send them first class mail to television stations around the country. I remember I once had a phone interview in like Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, I mean, I sent them to every corner of the earth and ended up getting a job um, about eight months after I graduated in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. uh, which is like the 150 something market. Um, and that's really where it all began because that's, you know, that's where I did sports three days or four days a week. And then one day a week or two days a week, I would also do news. Um, but I had to shoot, I had to edit, I reported, I anchored, I produced, I did everything myself, shot my own standups, edited my own packages. Um, it was, I learned every single aspect of the business in that first job. What, what was uh, some of the, the lessons you learned from those early days? Um, well, I mean, yeah, I'll be honest, you know, covering, having to cover news as well as sports, I learned how to dig for a story. Um, you know, feature stories you have to dig for in sports, but in, you know, on a general sort of day-to-day -day basis, if you're just a general assignment reporter and you're not a beat reporter, you can kind of go to the game and the game is the story, right? It's kind of handed to you on a platter. Um, uh, but having to, learn how to go to a city council meeting and try to figure out what the story of the day is there or work a story. Or if there is, I covered a double homicide, I covered a house explosion, trying to sort of cultivate those sources and learning how to ask the right questions to get answers helped me, I think, become a better sports reporter. Uh, because I learned that there was always a story beneath the story, um, which I think sometimes it's easy in sports to just sort of look at what's on the surface and not kind of dig deeper. So I learned that. And I also learned the value of every single position in in journalism and television. Like, you know, the only people you see are the people on TV, right? You don't see the producers, the directors, the editors, the photographers, the graphic people, the creative services. Uh, the associate producers, there are layer upon layers and layers of people that put together these shows that you're watching day in and day out. And I mean, I did all of that 
so I think I, you know, I, I cultivated a great appreciation for every single person's job and didn't take for granted that, that just because I was on TV, that that was the most important position. What were what was the biggest mistake you made uh, in, in, in the early days? Oh, God, I made a million dumb mistakes. Um, I mean, I don't even know if I could think of one. Um, asking yes or no questions, um, not double checking facts, uh, not listening to my interview subject and just reading, you know, having eight or nine questions on a piece of paper and only asking those questions, um, not prepping enough uh, and then missing something. Um <sighs> Writing something down sloppily and then getting lost on my, you know, writing directions down and getting lost and being late. I mean, that's why I think it's so important. And I really push people to go to those smaller markets, go to those smaller newspapers, smaller television stations to work those kinks out. Because now I think we rush to get people, we, we rush to put young and experienced people in, in bigger markets and in bigger papers. And I, I think those lessons are often lost. Do you think that's a function of like the internet or I mean, why do you think that is? I think it's a function of the internet. I think it's a function of this used to be a very lucrative business and it's not lucrative anymore. It's just not, you don't make, you know, uh, over the air television doesn't make the kind of money, you know, it once made um, with the addition of the internet, the addition of cable, you have a million different choices. So there's a lot more positions that need to be filled, but you're also not, you know, in a market like Boston, it used to be a market that you came to and you stayed and, you know, you made a really, really good living. And that still happens, but there's also a lot of instances where they think, well, I can get that person. They don't have as much experience, but I can get them for a lot less than I can get someone who has experience and we can just teach them on the job. I think it's a monetary thing. Mm -hmm. And I think there's less value now on because of the internet, there's less value on good storytelling and good journalism and experience. And it's kind of a hot new it thing. What's going to get someone to click on something? What's going to get someone to stay on this station? Um, which I think in, in time comes back to, to bite people. Mm -hmm. I mean, at what point did you kind of see, start to see that shift from your vantage point as a, as someone who's on TV? Uh, I mean, honestly, I probably saw it like right around, when I started getting my first jobs in the early 2000s, when it becomes when it became sort of in vogue to hire females, um, and everybody wanted a girl, you know, they wanted a female sports reporter because it was like the it thing to have, and you start to notice that. I mean, even I, my second second third job out of college when I moved to Pittsburgh, like I was hired there to be a hockey reporter. I sat in an interview room and told them I had never seen hockey before, and they hired me anyway. I thought I had no chance of the job. And I knew why I got the position. I got the position because I was young and I was female and I was in, relatively inexpensive for that market. Mm -hmm. And I knew I would work hard and I knew I would learn it. And I did. And I, I busted my butt and I learned about hockey. But I think it became very, um, you know, the whole advent of remember the ESPN, the show where they um, uh, had the kids kind of try out. And now I think Mike is on, Mike Hall is on uh, um, Big Ten Network. I mean, there was that. They kind of turned it into a reality show. It became entertainment. Um, and Mike's a great, that's not, a, uh, I mean, Mike's an awesome guy, and he's really great at what he does, and he's supremely talented. But, you know, that was the spawn of a, of a reality show. Like, let's put somebody, let's make somebody the next big star. And it became about, I think, that instead of journalism. Mm -hmm. I, th I think I think that's really interesting, uh, and I think it's uh, interesting. You're very outspoken on on the internet in, in on many platforms, um, but uh, you know, how, how do you kind of feel about this evolving role of of you know the female on on sports television? Because uh, I think it's I think it's a, a very difficult path for a lot of people, given that it is a visual medium and. Um, people expect to, you know, people, people expect something, uh, when it, when it comes to television and, you know, that's not necessarily what you, you feel like you're there to provide them. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy. Um, I think that people sort of want to put you in a box, right? They want to understand you. So what makes, I think 
we've become obviously more, obviously everyone's more comfortable with seeing women talk about sports. I mean, it's nothing now to have, you know, multiple women working at a station um, for networks. Obviously ESPN has a ton of very talented, smart women um, on staff there. I I would say that's, I think NBC does a really good job of um, hiring. I mean, you know, they just hired, you know, a rumored to be hiring Heather Cox. You know, it's not like they went after the next hot, young 25 year old thing. They went after a woman who's got a ton of experience, a ton of contacts, and is a really good reporter. So I think in some instances that that we've taken really huge strides in that area. But I also think women are still pigeonholed a lot. You know, how often do you, how often do I have an intern come in and say, I want to be a sideline reporter. I want to, you know, be the entertainment person who does like the tweets and the social media, because I feel like that's how we, we sort of showcase a lot of women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how many women do you see hosting talk shows? Mm-hmm. How many women do you see hosting radio that are, you know, main hosts of a radio show? I can't think of one off the top of my head. You know, there's the trifecta on ESPN, and I think Michelle Beadle and Ramona Shelburne have a show once a week on ESPN radio, but that's still sort of this untapped area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like women are still sort of kept in this box of, sure, you can come play in our sandbox, but you can only play with these toys. Mm-hmm. You know, don't move over into play by, like, how, you know, we have very few. I mean, look at the backlash from Jessica Mendoza um, doing Anna you know, being an analyst for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still like, hey, you can go ahead and if you want, you can report on it or you can host a baseball show, but don't you dare try to tell me how this guy should be pitching differently or what he's doing as a hitter because that's not where you belong. So I think that's sort of the next hurdle we have to get over is not pigeonholing women just into sort of certain roles that we think that women should fill. On that same token, though, like, I, and I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable spot because of all this stuff that that went on with uh, with just Jessica Moran and John Farrell in, in spring training, but um, there is still that stigma that some fans are going to have naturally that you know some people, some women are, are in the business just to to meet players, and I, I don't think you're in that in in that kind of same space. But you know, in, in the Boston market especially, there's been a lot of, uh, of of stuff going on between female reporters and. Uh, and, and, and the subjects that they cover. I mean, how do you kind of handle that on a, on a daily basis? I just look at it as people meet, you know, my, my feelings have certainly evolved on this, I think, over time. And it's, you know, it's, it's not a, a, a way that I have met a boyfriend or a spouse. Um, but as long as the conflict of interest is removed, you know, I sort of feel like, you know, you be you and do your own thing. And um, I, I sort of think it's sometimes a little unfair that it's the female who always gets stereotyped, right? Like, oh, well, because one does it, then obviously everybody's the exact same way. I don't think we do that same thing with men. And so why do we do it with women? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's totally fair. I think Jackie McMullen, I think, talked about this on WEI, and she had a really valid point. It was like, uh, why is all the blame going on Jess for that situation when there's, I think, just as much blame that you could put on John Farrell for for all the stuff that's been going on? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously not going to talk specifically right. about that, but, uh, yeah, I, just, I feel like, you know, it, it, it's that way no matter how you look at it in this industry. It is... When the onus is on the women to like not make a mistake, right? So when I go out to a story and if I'm out with my male colleagues on a story, it's almost assumed that they know what they're talking about. And I'm always sort of, it's viewed through a lens of suspicion. Why is she here? Did she earn her job? Does she really know what she's talking about? Was she only hired because she was a female? I mean, that's just, I think that's how it is sort of across the board in our industry. And that's something that we unfortunately haven't gotten past yet. Um, I think more so among colleagues, but in the general public, not as much. Do you have any specific instances of that kind of stuff happening? Uh, I mean, again, colleagues, not really so much anymore. Um, But I mean, online all the time. I mean, all the time, you know, you're told that you should go back into the kitchen or I don't want to listen to a chick tell me about sports. She doesn't really know what she's talking about. You know, it's just it's sort of the stereotype that people have a really hard time letting go of. How do you how do you deal with all of that? Sometimes I fight back because I have the energy. Sometimes I don't. You know, it just sort of depends. Um, 
I try to look, I have sort of like a, a, a ground rule on, on Twitter and interacting with people on social media. If you say something to me that's a little borderline, I'll try to go to your, your page and look and see, okay, is this someone who's usually a pretty rational human being? Um, and maybe I can engage them in a conversation as to why maybe they're criticizing me about something pretty stupid um, or inconsequential. And maybe we can have a productive discussion about it. Or is this someone who makes a living out of trashing everyone and then I just – then I either try to ignore it or I block them or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't hesitate. If you're, a, if you're a serial harasser, I have no problem you know, reporting you to Twitter. And I've tried to look up sometimes. I'll try and find out where you work and what you do because if you want to speak on a public medium, uh, then you're just as public as I am and you should face reprimands for what you say as well. We'll get back to trending in just one second, but first a word from our friends over at SeatGeek. If you've ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online, I know the feeling. Most sites make it really complicated and try to sneak in these huge fees at checkout, and that's why you need to check out SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek is the only place I ever go when I look for tickets to a game or concert. They've taken out all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. SeatGeek pulls all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal. You can set alerts for upcoming games and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every single ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on its value so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price of the ticket. And unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. Listeners to Dune of Bartolo can get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. So in order to do that, to get your $20 rebate, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter the promo code BARTOLO. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase, so download the free SeatGeek app today and enter promo code BARTOLO in order to get your $20 rebate. And uh, without further ado, back to Trini Kuznirik. It's really admirable, I think, for, I mean, there's been a lot of female sports reporters who have started to like really, really, really speak out about that over the last calendar year, even the last two years. Yeah, it just gets exhausting, right? So imagine every, you know, we use social media, and I hate when people say, oh, if you can't handle it, you know, get out of the business. Well, that's not really, that's, that's no, it's, it's how about other people learn how to act like human beings? And to say, well, just get off Twitter. Well, then you're taking a big part of my job off, because like it or not, and I wish it wasn't this way, but it is. I mean, you know how it is. Twitter is where news breaks. Twitter is where discussions happen. Twitter is where people make announcements now. I mean, it has become essentially a large search engine uh, for information. And so for me to just be like, oh, I'm not going to go on that and I'm not going to participate in it. I mean, I suppose I could be like Felger and like rely on everybody else to just tell me what's on Twitter. Um <laughs> You know, he lives a lovely, oblivious life to it. Um, I think for, you know, for me, I find a lot of interesting things to write. I find that most of the times the positives outweigh the negatives. Um, but it does. It becomes, it, you know, it weighs on you. It, it, it becomes exhausting to feel like you every time, you know, you log on. It's like, am I going to have to defend myself today? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how do you do? Do you, how how often do, do you think that that um, affects your your like personal life or just your your daily attitude towards life? You know, offline stuff. Like that? It depends if if I'm you know if I went for a good run that day and I'm in a good sort of mental space, it might not affect me at all. But on some days. It does. You know, you go home and you think, who could possibly dislike me so much that they would call me a C word, you know, or tell me they wish that I would die or, you know, that I'm a um, just another stupid tramp. I mean, like the things that people say to you behind a keyboard are, are ridiculous, right? Yeah. Um, so... You know, some days I'd be lying if I said sometimes it doesn't gnaw at me. And I definitely, I mean, I screen grab. If somebody really is pretty vile, I I make a point of screen grabbing it and sending it to a couple of friends because I'll be honest, you worry about your safety. You know, what if somebody, we live in a crazy world. What if somebody really flies off the handle and is upset about something? I'd like a paper trail. But it's ridiculous that I have to think that way. That I have to think about why well, I should take a screen grab of this just in case something ever happens to me. 
I think you told a story once about uh, how you were in Philadelphia and, and you were in a hotel and Prince. There was a there was a guy following you into an elevator and Prince Fielder was there to to uh, to help. Yeah, you out. yeah, yeah. And it was funny because I like actually. Uh, Richard Deitch from uh, SI wrote the column shortly after uh, the Aaron Andrews uh, lawsuit was settled. And yeah, I mean, it was just, I mean, again, I'm sure that it happens to women who travel alone. That's the thing. I don't think that some of the fears and the anxieties I have about traveling for work or about being, you know, on the internet or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, it's certainly not specific to being a sports reporter. Um, I just read an article a few weeks ago um, in a paperback in Wisconsin about um, what politicians face. There was just all the vitriol that the some councilwomen in Seattle faced because they did not approve public funding for a new arena. So it is a, I, I think women who I know, I have friends who don't work in a public you know, sphere at all, but if they travel a lot for work, they take extra precautions. Um, so, it, but I, you know, I had gone out for the night and we were all hanging out in the lobby and some guy kind of chatted me up and I was trying to just go back to my room and he got, you know, he tried to make it seem like he was with me on the elevator. And it was, I remember going back to my room after, you know, Prince made sure I got off the elevator and I was okay. And I remember calling my boyfriend at the time and I was terrified. Um, and I thought it was funny that someone on, I had actually looked at one of the comments stupidly in the comment section. And this guy's like, Oh, she's such an idiot. I'm sure that guy was just going to his room. And it's like, no, you know the difference. You know, you I know the difference of someone who's just getting on the elevator with me and going to their room as opposed to someone who is trying to pretend like he's on the elevator with me to go somewhere with me. Um, and I think, you know, one of the problems we face just as a gender as a whole, again, take profession out of it, is that sometimes our fears and anxieties aren't validated and believed because men, quite frankly, don't have to worry about it. It's not something that they ever have to face. So it's important for guys to understand that if I'm telling you that I'm uncomfortable, I'm not telling you this just to be dramatic. I'm telling you because I literally feel and I genuinely feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's very admirable that I, you've been someone who's who's very been very open about talking about mental health and uh your, your bouts with depression and uh, there, there's been obviously multiple articles written about it. Uh, could you just kind of could talk about, uh, you know, your willingness to, to, to talk about these things and, and how, how did all this kind of get started? Um, well, it got started in 2012. Um, I was working with a local um, reporter that was going to write a feature story on me in Milwaukee. And, um, you know, we kind of, plotted it out and mapped it out. And um, I was in the press box at Miller Park uh, when news came across, <laughs> ironically, Twitter, um, about Junior Seau's death. And it just hit me um, in that moment. And I thought, you know, I at that point, I had, you know, had diagnosed depression for at least 12 years at that point. Um, I mean, hadn't really talked about it with many people, a couple of close friends, but really not even my family that much. Um, I was really hesitant. I'd wanted to talk about it publicly, but I was really afraid of the career ramifications of it. Um, also, you know, what I, this is pre-Obamacare where pre-existing conditions could hurt you on insurance. I was afraid I wouldn't get insured. Um, and then, you know, again, I didn't know Junior. It's not like I knew his family or knew him well or covered him well, but it was a player that, you know, I'd had minimal interactions with, but had grown up and watched play for a long time. And, his suicide just really rocked me and I just felt like it was time to maybe share my story because I, I feel like I know when I go through a bout of anxiety or a depression or a combination of both, um, having a strong support system and having people who understand what I'm going through and who don't dismiss it as just a bad mood or a bad little stretch is um, really important and really helpful. So I thought if people could maybe understand that they weren't alone, that it would make a difference. Um, so, I mean, in the article, it says that, uh, you know, it was, you got, you started, you started MLB network in, in 2009, which I believe was, was when that started, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I started in 2000. Yeah. Winter of 2008. Um, and, and it's, and you know, it says, you know, was, I mean, the MLB network is, is like a dream job, you know, like you, you go into national network and having that kind of platform and you said baseball was your favorite sport growing up. So I, I'm sure it meant a lot, but, um, you know, it says in the article that you had a hard time kind of 
it didn't feel like it was the right decision, I guess, is, is kind of the Yeah, of it, it just, it was, you know, sometimes things are just off. And I think I knew in my gut that maybe it wasn't the right time to take the job. But, you know, when you're offered something, sometimes you just take it because you, you're, you think to yourself, when will I ever get this chance again? Um, even though I was only like 31 years old or something, you know, when I was offered the job. And I loved baseball. Um, but I think just, com you know, there was a combination of so many things. Like I was trying to maintain a long distance relationship and I had moved to Manhattan and, um, you know, I don't know if I really had a great grasp and control on understanding my anxiety and my depression at that time. And it was just sort of, you know, the, the perfect storm of all these things sort of coming together of trying to find my footing at this network and being really young compared to everybody else and all the other talent. And really the only person who hadn't worked in a really big market and a really big job and um, just a lot of insecurities and a lot of behind the scenes things. And again, trying to balance uh, work and travel and relationships and um, altogether, it just, it, 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 um, kind of really spiraled uh, out of control. How did you, how did that kind of <clears throat> manifest itself? Um, you know, I can always kind of tell, I feel like when I, when I start to, um, sort of creep closer and, and by this point you'd think I would know better. Um, but when I start to sort of creep towards a bad spot, it usually starts slow. It's a sort of a slow simmer for me. For some people, it comes on, and for everyone, it's different. It's like any other disease. It, it, it manifests itself in different ways. For me, it sort of starts where I can start to feel where I don't sleep as well. I'm not as hungry. I'm waking up in the middle of the night. I'm feeling anxious and don't know why I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling sad and don't know why I'm feeling sad. And then it's usually one sort of trigger point thing um, and to be quite honest, I don't even remember, you know, the, those episodes can be such a fog. I don't remember exactly what it was. That was the tipping point at that time. Um, but it just, it, it spirals out of control where you don't, I, you know, I'm a person who is usually pretty social and likes to do things and be active. And it was a funk where I just, I didn't want to talk to people. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to lay on my couch and watch TV. Um, and it still happens. I mean, I, you know, I recently went back on medication. Um, I've been dealing with a lot of anxiety lately. There's been just, you know, things changing and moving and, um, and I had gone off medication for a while, which maybe isn't the best thing for me to do. And, um, it's, it's hard. It's a constant, like I said to Kevin in the article, it's, it's exhausting. It's a constant balance of, of making sure I eat right and exercise and get enough sleep and have human interaction, not just online interaction with people. But that's hard to do when you work a job that some days you work, you know, from 11 to 7. Some days you work from 3 to midnight. Some days, you know, you work six hours. Some days you work 15. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's, it's not easy always to keep things sort of in check. So when you get a sense of, like, of, that, of that coming on, how do you – I mean, what are the steps that you take to, to, to deal with it? I mean, you try to, um, you know, you try to make sure you're sleeping. I try to make sure I'm sleeping better. I try to make sure I'm eating better. I try to make sure that I'm talking to somebody about it. But to be quite honest, sometimes you just can't stop it. Um, and it rolls out of control. Um, you know, I, I, if, I think if I knew how to stop episodes, I would like win the Nobel Prize for medicine or something. Um, you know, and the, the tough thing about mental illness is when you go off medicine and then go back on, it oftentimes takes that medicine four to eight weeks to get into your system and to regulate your serotonin and to regulate your mood. So you could be in the throngs of an episode for a month or two before you start to feel better. Um, and that might be, you know, most times you try, I try to manage things without medicine until I, until I can't anymore, which probably, again, isn't the best thing for me to do. So you think about it and you've been going through something for months before it sort of hits a, hits a crescendo. How much do you think uh, it's tied, uh, you know, your mood swings are, are tied to your, your job? Because journalism is obviously a very competitive industry and you're also to a certain extent, especially in the Boston market, a public figure and you're on television, how much do you think is tied to, to your profession? Um, I mean, I think it's obviously 
part of it, you know, um, but I also find a lot of solace in it. Like if I am having a bad day, work is the one place that I really have something I can focus on. My mind doesn't wander as much. Um, I have to, you know, I have to sort of be on when that light is on. It's, um, it's almost therapeutic for me because it, it sort of, for that, for that half hour that I'm on a show, I forget all the things that I'm worried about. you know, beneath the surface or the things that are bothering me beneath the surface. And I think you get that rush of adrenaline, um, which kind of gives you that sort of natural mood boost. Um, So it's afterwards sometimes that, you know, you come down and it's, 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 and it's that alone time when you go home, that's the toughest, not the time that you're at work. But I think that the, the time that you're alone is also kind of tied to your job because journalism is, you know, the hours are, are, uh, you know, oh, yeah, normal. the hours are, t- I mean, it's not like I can go to bed every night at 10 o'clock, get up every morning at six, go take a spin class, come home, you know, when I'm done with work. But, you know, but again, I would say then, you know, st- there are plenty of people who have nine to five jobs who suffer from mental illness as well. It's not, I, I think to say, I think it's, I think it's not fair to say that it's an external thing that causes um, it, that causes people to be depressed or anxious. I think situationally, yes. But for someone like me who's dealt with anxiety and depression for 15 years, I mean, I held, I dealt with this when I was in middle school. I wasn't a journalist in middle school. You know, I was just a student. I mean, it is a, in, you know, this isn't something that is driven by circumstance. Mm-hmm. It's driven by a, it's driven by chemicals and synapses and things in your brain. I'm not a doctor. I can't explain it probably as well as a psychiatrist could. But I think once we move away from thinking, oh, well, if that person just doesn't do that job anymore, or if that person made more money, it's not tied to external things. It's an internal physical thing that happens to manifest itself mentally. Mm-hmm. So at, at what point did you kind of realize that, um, that maybe MLB Network was not the place where you needed to be? Uh, within two years, within two years, I, I, I knew that it was just not a great fit for me. Well, what, 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 I mean, um, what was it, what was it about, about the situation? It just, it just wasn't the right fit for me. I, I you know, I, 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 I enjoyed my time there. I have a lot of friends who work there and who were great to me, but at that point in time in my life, it just wasn't, it wasn't what I needed uh, I don't think, you know, not the city I needed to live in, not the place I needed to be, not the stress I needed to be under and the pressure I needed to be under. I needed to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. So from there, you go back home, right? Yes, I went home. I actually took some time off. Um, I went to India um, and did some volunteer work um, and then was actually going to get out of the business altogether um, and was going to work in nonprofit and I uh, had a conversation with someone about that, and she gave me some advice that, you know, the best, unfortunately, we live in a society that listens to people who are on TV and radio and work in athletics and will sort of buy their product, quote unquote, um, and um, said, you know, if you really want to make a difference, pick a cause, pick something you believe in, and maybe talk about it through journalism through media through a medium um so i was actually offered shortly after that i was offered a job to do radio and television for a station in milwaukee and i took it um after probably like a six-month hiatus from the business Mm -hmm. uh what i mean so you were doing radio what was kind of the reason why you felt like that was the entryway back into to media uh, that's what I was offered. <laughs> I mean, to be quite honest, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to leave Milwaukee at the time. I wanted to kind of stay somewhere that was within my comfort zone, um, and and be somewhere that um, you know I was close to family and close friends. Um, and they offered me the job, and I thought, you know what? I've always loved doing talk radio. I'm going to give it a try. It's the chance for me to add another skill set. You know, learn how to host a radio show, learn how to do sports talk, get better at it. Um, I think in the end, it made me a better overall anchor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so that's just, I figured, why not? It's here, it's home, it gives me a chance to do it. I actually thought I would probably never leave. 
Um, and when I was offered the position to come out here and audition, I just sort of came out on a, on a whim. I was like, yeah, I'll go, go see if I like it. I've always liked Boston. I might as well at least audition. Um, but I wasn't sure that I would ever take a job out here. So, uh, so let's rewind a little bit. Uh, so you start doing radio, uh, and, and we we touched on this before, but there's you know there's not a lot of female people holding uh, hosting radio shows. Uh, has there been, who who are who are the kind of people that you look up to when it comes to um, kind of the the pioneers in terms of like female quote unquote opinionists? I mean, it's really sparse. Um, you know, I guess Christine Brennan comes to mind because she's a great columnist. Jackie McMullen comes to mind because she's a great columnist. Um, that's, you know, I, I, that's Michelle Beadle at the time, I think had just started doing sports nation. Um, but other than that, I mean, there really wasn't, I, I didn't do it because another woman did it. I just did it because I really, sure, yeah. in, because I was given the opportunity and I liked it and I liked having the chance to express an opinion. Uh, but there really weren't many people to look up to and say, oh, that's the right way to do it or that's the wrong way to do it. Um, you know, there was the fabulous sports babe, but she was out in Seattle, so I'd never really heard her radio shows. Um, so there really wasn't much of a model um, for me to sort of emulate. Have you always been like comfortable just talking about your opinions? Yeah, I think so. I've always, I've never, certainly never held anything back. It's probably one of my best and worst attributes. <laughs> what, do, what do you think? I mean, why do you think that is? Um, I don't know. I just, you know, my mom's pretty opinionated. My mom's pretty strong headed. Um, she never, for better, or for worse, she never really held back what she was thinking. Um, and I definitely was raised in a household where gender wasn't there was there was no there there was no in there was no sort of onus put on you that you had to be a certain way just because you were a girl, you know. Like we were encouraged to play sports, we were encouraged to speak our mind, we were encouraged to basically. And I remember being told as a little girl that you can do whatever you want; it doesn't matter if other girls do that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just I think it's just sort of the way that I was raised. Mm-hmm. Uh- so, so you come out to Boston, you audition, uh, they offer you the job. What is kind of going through your head? Um, you know what? I knew right away I wanted to come here. It just was a feeling. It was a gut feeling. Uh, when I came out here, it just sort of felt right. Felt um, all the sort of wrong feelings when I went to New York and MLB and was like something just isn't sitting right. Just my gut is telling me something's not 100% on point here. Uh, it was the opposite here. I just felt like something felt very welcoming and right about Boston and the city and the station and the company. And um, I didn't hesitate. I actually didn't think they were going to offer me the job. I auditioned in early June, I think. I wasn't offered the job until late July. Um, so I had sort of just given up on the fact that I would even um, get offered the position. And, and when they did, I didn't hesitate to um, accept. I knew I just kind of knew in my gut it was a good place to come. So how have you how have you enjoyed Boston so far? It's certainly a unique. Oh, I love it. it. I love it. No, I love it. I mean, I like that people speak their mind. I like that people. Um, I like that they're that while people love and are passionate about sports, I have found so many friends here outside of media and outside of athletics, and people who are just generally curious about the world and have been a lot of places and seen a lot of things and want to have you know. Sometimes we have great sports conversations in our newsroom, and sometimes we have really great, you know, sociological, political, um, ethical, you know, conversations. So I, I sort of like that crossover. I like that if I want, I can go to the garden, but I can also go to a lecture at Harvard. Um, I like that there is a melting pot of people here. Um, I like the quaintness of New England and the kind of the history in the old towns. I mean, it's just, it's, I tell people all the time, I feel like Boston really felt like home very, very early for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've been, I think your role has kind of evolved over the, the last couple of years. You, you know, you were doing a lot of uh, hosting the, the highlight show and, and you've been doing more of the, the sports tonight, the, uh, the opinion stuff. You've been doing some radio. Uh, how have you kind of adapted to your role kind of, you know, changing over the last couple of years? I love it. Um, I mean, that's ideally, I think, where I always wanted things to go, which is, you know, kind of why I always loved doing radio. I liked that medium. So for me, it's a it's a perfect fit. 
Um, I really enjoy the you know the only thing I wish I could do, and this is every reporter's dream. Most for I should say most reporters. You know, I'd love to do like more long form feature reporting and really dive into stuff, but that's hard to do. You need a lot of resources for it. Um, so I love I love going out on set and arguing with Gary and arguing with Felger and you know. Um, going back and forth with Dallin or Greg Dickerson or whoever we happen to have on. You know, I love doing radio with Hardy and with Toucher and Rich, and maybe one day Felger and Maz will have me on. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it's – and Bertrand is one of my favorite people in Solak to work with. I mean, all those guys, I just think it's um, – they've really accepted me as um, – you know, again, I, I it, it sucks that I have to still say this, but they don't treat me like a female colleague. They treat me like a colleague. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just been amazing. I couldn't ask for anything more. How does that, how does that make you feel when you like feel like you've been like accepted into this, you know, this? Oh, it's great. I mean, it's a, it's, I mean, again, I think it says a lot about sort of the evolved thinking, um, that a lot of people that particularly people in the industry have gone through. Um, it also makes me feel good about my body of work, um, because I don't think, you know, it's, it's not like there, it's, it's not like there's a lot of other women doing it. Um, so for them to open their arms to me and accept me and encourage my career and this path means a lot. So, uh, you're obviously doing a lot of things for Comcast sports now, right now. Uh, and, and you seemingly are enjoying doing it. Uh, what are you hoping to do over the next, you know, five to 10 years? You know, I honestly don't know. I mean, I feel like, I mean, I'm already 39, so can I win the lottery and retire early? Um, you know, I don't know. I guess I would like to continue building sort of an opinion style brand, um, and do, you know, more of that sort of style of, um, of television and radio and maybe, you know, sort of bringing a different view and a different light to what talk is in this market and other, you know, and, and just as, as a whole, um, you know, bringing a different voice, bringing a different point of view. Um, obviously, there's a lot of crossover from real life and sports, unfortunately, now, um, both positively and negatively in civil rights and like criminal things in labor negotiations. There's a lot of crossover between the two. And I think they're all important health wise with concussions and painkillers and football and, and uh, the way that they deal with those kind of ethical questions. Um, I'd love to have continue having a platform to talk about some of the really important issues that I think are very um, front and center and that sports could be sort of a conduit to get people to care about some of those things. What kind of perspectives do you think you bring to the table? Um, I mean, I, gosh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> my perspective, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know how to answer that to be quite honest. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I, grew up in a middle-class family, paid my way through college, have worked, I think, pretty hard for myself to get where I am. I've seen a lot of things. I've, I've traveled to a ton of countries. Um, I've done, a, you know, I've, I, I feel like I've done a fair amount of work with various socioeconomic groups. So I think I've seen and experienced a lot that allows me to sort of see things from a lot of different vantage points. And not just through the prism of X's and O's or sports or, you know, athletes and media um, sort of off to the side. But I feel like I can sort of see it from a lot of different vantage points. Journalism is obviously uh, it's uh, the hours are, are weird and intense and the work is very competitive. How do you balance your professional life and, and your personal life? Uh, I probably could do a better job. I've learned to say no, to be quite honest. I've just learned to say no. Like if I can't do something or if I don't want to do something or because I'm tired or I just need, I just need a night on my couch, just watching TV. Um, I, that's, I, that I just have learned to be like, no, I can't do that tonight. Or no, I can't speak at that event. Or I'm sorry. No, I can't do that podcast. It's too much. Um, because I think a lot of times you, when you're younger, you try to say yes to everything because you're afraid if you say no, they'll pick somebody else. Um, now I'm not going to rearrange my entire, like if I have something going on and it's important to me and my boss says, Hey, can you switch shifts and work this shift instead? 
you know, I'll, I'll say yes sometimes if I can, obviously, but there'll be times where I'll say, no, you know, this person is a priority for me and this person is important to me and I, you know, made plans with them already. I'm sorry, I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. But that's a luxury, I, I think, that comes with time and age and experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you like to do? And you've, you've run a bunch of marathons, uh, you know, and you, and you enjoy running. What are, what are some of the other things you like doing to uh, occupy your time other than work? Um, I do. I'm really, I, I'm genuinely like really into working out. Like I love going to spin class and, um, boxing and running. Um, I like getting outside and hiking sometimes like getting into the outdoors. I love to read. Um, I love watching documentaries. I'm, um, I love exploring. I really like, I think the thing I enjoy most is exploring and traveling and just learning about a lot of new things and new people and different cultures, which I guess seems just like an extension of what I do for a living. Um, but like I, you know, I can go in the winter, I can go to the art museum and get lost for hours on end and like, you know, have the headphones and learn about the pictures I'm looking at and the artists and things like that. Like those are things I genuinely enjoy, enjoy doing. And I just like spending time with, you know, my friends, the, the, the people that I've met here and, um, having good conversation, maybe like having great food and wine and just relaxing and hanging out because I, I think people and their stories are interesting. Um, so I like being, spending as much time with like actual people as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, is there anything that, uh, that I didn't ask you about that you wish I would have asked you about? No, no, not not that I can think of. I feel like I've told you my entire life story. Like other than the fact that my mom was like in labor with me for 36 hours. (laughs) That's like the only part we missed. Uh, well, Trini, thanks again for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And congratulations. Good luck this summer. You're going to be awesome. Yeah, leaving this uh, Sunday. So uh, it'll it'll be oh, a good luck. Move. Don't forget us little people. Uh, thank, thanks again, Trenny. Have a good one. Yeah, no problem, June. You too. You melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. Your love is justified. Thanks again to Trenny Kuznirik for coming on to the show this week. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Follow Trenny on Twitter at Trenny, T-R-E-N-N-I. And on the show next week, we have the legendary baseball writer, the Hall of Famer, the guy I want to have on the show, uh, the number one guest I want to have on the show since I kind of came up with what I want to do with a podcast. It's Mr. Peter Gammons, and uh, Peter was unbelievable. Uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear our conversation. Uh, you guys probably know Peter is an unbelievable storyteller, and you guys are really going to enjoy uh, kind of our talk about his, his entire career. Uh, it's It was a great chat. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the show, head over to iTunes at the subscribe button, leave us a rating, uh, tell a friend. Peter Gammons is coming on to the podcast next week. Listen to the show. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at IamJulie. Follow the show on Twitter at Bartolopod. And that's about it. Guys, Peter Gammons is on the podcast next week. We've made it. <laughs> At least I hope so. Uh, see you guys in the next one. Your love is simple, baby. You've been on my mind. Since you're watching me. I do it all the time. Since you say you love me. It's just a fire. It's just a fire. It's just a fire.